And we're back. Welcome to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. I am also Mike doing the introductions today because this will be the first of two guest-hosted episodes on the Tribeca Film Festival alongside my friend and fellow festival-goer Scott Yeager of Challenge Mania. So Mike won. Uh, He's going to get the week off as we'll release both of these Tribeca episodes for you guys this weekend before returning next week with shows on Asteroid City, Past Lives, and what's going to be another fun Oscar race checkpoint, uh, especially after that Challengers trailer. You guys know what I'm talking about there. Otherwise, you guys know Scott Yeager as the host of Challenge Mania with Derek Kaczynski. Uh, So if you enjoy the challenge, the reality show on CBS uh, from MTV's Real World and Road Rules, uh, then make sure you guys subscribe to Challenge Mania and click on challengemania.live, their website, where you guys can get tickets to upcoming live shows in Seattle, Texas, Baltimore, etc., etc. Scott is touring the country and having a blast doing it. Uh, in terms of this podcast, MMO, you guys know Scott from our Sagmania episodes of the last two years, previewing the Screen Actors Guild Awards, where Scott gives us an insider look at the nomination process from a SAG member and last year from a nomination committee voters perspective. So go back and listen to those shows. Scott and I had such a fun time talking Tribeca that this will be a two-part episode. Part one is going to be more of a how-to festival guide. Scott is going to give you guys a bunch of tips after years of attending this festival as for me i've done it two years in a row now in person a couple years before that online during the pandemic Uh, but i'll be comparing tribeca to the new york film festival and to other film festivals on the calendar Uh, we'll both be talking food and drinks and how we did all these screenings and how we targeted all these premiere screenings in particular to make what's hopefully uh your next trip to the Tribeca Film Festival a lot of fun. We also ended this episode with reviews on first-time female director that'll be heading to Roku, starring Chelsea Peretti alongside of a ton of my favorite comedians and and people in comedy, Megan Mullally, Jermaine Fowler, Andy Richter, Natasha Leggera, and uh, Jordan Peele. And we also reviewed Universal's The Adults, starring Michael Sarah of Superbad fame. This is the end, Arrested Development, of course. Uh, Hannah Gross from Mind Hunter on Netflix there, and Sophia Lillis, who's uh, been been great as a young actor uh, in Stephen King's It, parts one and two there, chapters one and two, and of course, uh, Sharp Objects. So stay tuned for those two reviews after a big how-to, and I can't wait for you guys to hear part two of this conversation, which I'll probably drop for you uh, this weekend as well. We're going to review 15 additional Tribeca Film Festival movies, so the bulk of the reviews will be in that part two and i'll tease you guys about all of those movies on the outro so without any further ado i'm gonna dive in here and edit into my conversation uh seamless edit of course with scott yeager on tribeca let's welcome scott back to mike mike and oscar 
Yeah, pleasure to be here uh, now to talk about uh, something else that has been near and dear to my heart for uh, several years now. I was trying to figure out the first year I started going to this film festival, so I'm glad we were able to figure out something else on the docket to uh, get me back on here. Yeah, I was thrilled uh, that we were both going to Tribeca this year and uh, that we could you know, sit in with that uh, adult screening. That, that sounds wrong. I think phrasing is going to be... Uh, an issue with that movie but no i, I think uh i think it was uh, a great time where we had to sit down at this uh, burger joint that we'll talk to to the people about and uh it was it was awesome to uh to, to i'm not usually down there for the rest of my every year uh so tribeca is a cool spot man i i, I really en- i really enjoyed circulating the area for that's for sure well, it's interesting. You guys live in Connecticut. I used to live in Connecticut. And I think when I first started going to the Tribeca Film Festival, I was still commuting out of my parents' house in Stanford, Connecticut. And you really have to love it and really have to want to see a movie to get on the Metro North or whatever and come into Manhattan and then wait on a line and get in an Uber, which probably didn't even exist back then. So then take a cab or the subway or whatever. And uh, and now I have the luxury of, of living not just in Manhattan, but in the, the lower part part of Manhattan I can walk to a lot of these venues and things like that but so it's funny because you are doing what I think I did early on and and something mm. we'll get to is the Tribeca Film Festival something that gets easier more enjoyable and easier to navigate with with uh repetition and you sort of, and, and, I, and I every year I'm sort of learning more tricks of the trade and things like that uh but back when I was driving all the way in from Connecticut uh man did I waste a lot of time and man did I you know see a lot of movies I, that did not deserve the uh sometimes <laughs> 90 minute to two hour commute that I was taking so it was interesting obviously I got to walk to said burger joint uh and you obviously came in all the way from Connecticut and met me there on the way to your first movie but um yeah it's funny coming coming full circle because I, I totally remember those days of how we really had to load up the the schedule and pack as much in as you can to kind of warrant coming all the way into the Big Apple from the nutmeg state. I have uh, I have done a couple things to mitigate the the traveling aggravation. Number one, I make sure that I got all my podcasts to listen to. I make sure that I got my phone charger so I can plug in right there on the Metro North, and I make sure that I'm just doing work the whole time. And you're right, uh, what my brothers call the vomit comet. Going home at the 11.30 or the 12.07 uh, late night train where it's got to be a local. You're making every stop. It's long. I mean, you're ready for it to be long. That's the hardest part. There's no doubt about it. But I can do food research on my way there, which is always good because I get myself hyped up. You know, I found some cool spots that I want to talk about today. And I, I definitely, you know, can make sure we prep the hell out of these episodes uh, together so that like that's my, how I mitigate it I don't know if I'm I'm doing it wrong or anything but uh, so you I mean you're there in 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 Manhattan uh, and you're just able to walk to and fro and, and kind of uh, you know you're there every day obviously here's let me mention these food joints and you tell me if I did it right or did it wrong mm-hmm. I did deep dish pizza at Emmett's in the village. <laughs> okay. I don't know if that, that was too heavy. I did a shrimp po' boy at 1803, which is right up near Tribeca. Mm-hmm. I did chicken and the eggs pretty boy fried chicken sandwich. That was my late night grub, uh, Union Square. That's a good one. Uh, that's a new. That's a newer spot, and it's actually got a speakeasy in the back, uh, which my wife and I discovered. Uh, randomly when we saw like a red carpet outside of what we thought was just like a countered chicken joint but no they actually have like a bar in the back too yeah big fan of that spot 
just just that open in the last couple too. of years. Yep. Because that was open after one of my late night screenings, and I was I was ravenous for whatever reason. Uh, and I knew you know you shouldn't eat that time of night, but I was so happy because that place was open, and so was Joe's downtown in Union Square. Uh, and I had like an hour to kill before my train, so that was perfect. And then Peter McManus's Pop Pops cheeseburger and tra- and then Trailer Park's nachos, we ate those together, which I thought was solid. Like I'm not gonna rank. Pop Pop's cheeseburger up with PJ Clark's necessarily, but I thought it was a solid burger. What'd you think? I actually really liked the burger. When I walked into the cool. place, I was worried it was going to be kind of one of those no frills kind of old school burgers that's just like kind of just, I don't know, half a pound of chuck and a tomato and just kind of take it or leave it and you just have to pretend that you like it more than you do. But no, it had like the burger sauce, which to me is like kind of a more modern invention. You know, some people Mm. call it Big Mac sauce or whatever you want to call it, Thousand Island-based burger sauce. To me, for it to be a great burger, it's got to have something going like that, whereas like a lot of the older school, especially New York kind of dive bar-y burgers are just like ketchup on the side, just very, again, like something like your dad would just make in the backyard. So I'm kind of a burger snob in that regard because we're kind of spoiled with the Shake Shacks and the In-N-Outs and whatnot. So this yes. one did have those elements to it, which I was surprised by, but it did have that kind of old-timey feel as well. So I would actually rate this burger pretty highly. I would recommend definitely good. checking it out if you're in that area. Um, definitely a good place to drop in. It def- I mean, when we went, it was not crowded, uh, which sort of trendier places can be. It is definitely, uh, you know... A, it, it is, it, you know, it's it, it smells like the night before kind of a place. You know, it's definitely, a, you know, sit at the bar, maybe have a couple beers, have your burger. Um, and, you know, you with the guy next to us who was sitting there was just like posted up there working or whatever. So it definitely feels like a New York <laughs> spot. It doesn't have the, you know, sort of a. You know, maybe some of the maybe appeal that would make it more of a, a tourist destination, but that's that's kind of a good thing. So yeah, I was uh, I had never thought about going there until you mentioned it, but now if I'm ever in the area and need, need a quick bite, uh, I would check nice. it out again. Not a cheap burger by any means, but for a twenty dollar burger, it was uh, pretty damn good. Yeah, I was I was happy with it, but you know, I wasn't like blown away i was watching again i was hyping myself up on the train watching a youtube videos it's one of new york's oldest and most genuine and most authentic irish bars and look at i got there we we sat down for whatever it was i believe it was 90 minutes or so before you know uh, a first screening and i had four guinness <laughs> and a pretty darn good burger and i would say like my favorite part about the burger was the onions again i'm i'm into onions on the burger now they had this big red onion on the burger so that that seems like a new york thing too like pj clark's does it on every burger that you know that that's the best there and then this was this was awesome i will say scott the shrimp po' boy was probably my favorite thing that i had that's near tribeca 1803 this place wasn't crowded but this it, it was like New Orleans in there. It was Mardi Gras when you walk in there. The de- the decor was nuts, and I got this shrimp po' boy that was you know fried shrimp whatever. But it was like this little dainty sandwich, and it was so easy to eat, and it was so quick to eat. Maybe that's why I was hungry later. But 
that thing worked like 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 all get up and then they get yeah they had these fries with this garlic aioli or whatever that was pretty great well there you go i, I mean a fri- fries with a a non-ketchup dipping agent is is the way to go i can always tell within two seconds of asking a waiter <laughs> if they have some sort of a chipotle mayo or an aioli or something you can literally tell within a, before words even come out of their mouth whether they know exactly what you're talking about and they have something or they can have the chef whip something up or whatever or again to go back to like what some of these old school the vibe is where they're just like what do you they, they like no sell you what are you talking we have ketchup we have regular mayonnaise. They make you feel really stupid yeah. about wanting anything to dip anything in. Um, and it, sometimes I'll just like I'll just be like, you know what? It's all good. Forget it. They'll be like, we this have mustard. Guy. I'll be like, no, you don't get it. Um, <laughs> we're so spoiled as just people who eat in the uh, 2023. Right. Everything's got like 40 accompaniments and sides and sauces and this and that. That um, when you go to a place that isn't doing it right, it really uh, really feels like a downgrade. But the real move that you made, I mean, all these are great food <laughs> options. New York is a great food town. But the, the four Guinness, I got to say, which you took down four in the amount of time that I took down two. Granted, I, I definitely talk <laughs> a lot, which is why sometimes I... Um, I also don't burp, so I'm not I'm not like someone who could take down beers at like a very right. high pace. But that being said, something that like first of all, it was during the day, which is a lot of people who don't subscribe to drinking during the day, but also drinking before a movie, particularly like like say like a film festival type of movie, whatever, not necessarily a common practice, but I am all for it. <laughs> I find myself and we'll get to when we get to some of these reviews. I find myself enjoying movies more so uh, when I've had a couple of, of drinks, beers, cocktails, whatever it is beforehand, and particularly movies at, say, a film festival where you know the filmmaker's there, you really get to feel like you're part of the process, you get a little talk at the beginning, there's a lot of applause. Like To me... You know, not to say that that wouldn't happen without like you know a, a couple or, or four Guinness before, but I feel like it hits different when you're you're in there and the opening credits hits and the crowd is erupting for the name of the editor showing up on the screen. I, I get a little bit of a little bit of goosebumps there in the arms, and I don't know if it's just the moment or maybe it's the beers talking, but. I think not enough people look at uh, a movie or especially a film festival screening as something that you might want to pregame a little bit before. I know a lot of people like to do that before a concert or a comedy show or something like that, but I find that it adds to the experience, particularly when, and we'll get to this too, there's a lot of waiting, there's a lot of standing in line, there's a lot of you're right. sitting in the theater and you're watching the same advertisements that the sponsors of the Tribeca Film Festival have paid to have played before every single screening. So I'm sure there's people who go to one or two screenings and they see these ads once. I saw them seven to eight times in a week, and by the end of it, it helps to have had a couple drinks before to kind of like, you know, find the holes in some of the narratives on some of these uh, coming attractions in the form of, uh, you know, Capital One ads or whatever they are. So, um, I, you know, I think, I don't know if you did that every time or you just did that when you came in to see me, but my wife, by the end of this week, was <laughs> was really critiquing the amount of drinking I had. But she's like, she's like, she's like, did you, have, what, what? I said, yeah, I had a couple of White Claws on the way. She's like, hey, what is your fifth time this week? I go, sweetie, that's how a film festival works. I don't know what to tell this, you. I've been to a lot of screens. She's like, do you have to drink done. before every one of them? I'm like, kind of, I kind of do. <laughs> well, I, I'll tell you what, I just drank before with you before that one screening. I, otherwise I would have a coffee or what, whatnot. I'm not, I'm not the biggest drinker in the world. And I got the same thing. I got this Italian stomach where I can do wine and whatnot, but I can't, I can't do like big sudsy beers. So I, I, the Guinness goes down easy and I, I don't know. I'm an eighth Irish. I had one ginger grandma, God love her, my Nana. And, uh, I could 
I could put down Guinness, I could put down four or five, and that's really all you want to do. You don't want to, because it's like drinking oatmeal, even though it's low calorie, you don't want to drink a ton of Guinness. So uh, it's it's fun to just have three or four, and you're right, uh, it's definitely colored that movie experience for me, first time female director, we'll get into it. So the best drink yeah, of choice th- if you're going to do it is the like the 100 calorie seltzer, the white claw, the light okay. on your feet kind of thing. Especially now, yep. I don't know if it is technically legal, but since the pandemic, they've definitely lightened up to drinking on the street. So these cans from you know across the block look like a Red Bull. So maybe you're drinking one on the way to the screening. I'm not telling you what to do, but that's maybe what I do. <laughs> and and we'll, we'll talk about this also. It's like, you know, again, it, it depends on what screening you're going to. But a lot of these screenings, the entire crew cast is in the house. Sometimes you're sitting near them, yes. you're sitting next to them, whatever. You know, depending on wh- whether we're courage, talking just some you know, liquid courage. Yeah, there's a little bit of liquid courage in there as well. If you say you see somebody that you you know or respect and you want to hey great job with the film or i loved your last project or whatever not to say that regular people can't have the guts to go talk to somebody without you know greasing it a little bit but it does kind of help because sometimes you, you'll, be, you'll be like wait does this person want to hear from me do they want this compliment i want to give them and and whatnot so hey you know much like you might want to have a cocktail or two before going on a tinder date uh or something like that or going out to the bar and, and trying to meet new people whatever it, you know, the film festival can also be a bit of a, a networking thing as well, whether you work in the industry or you're just kind of fans of the people that you're going to, to support and see, I find it to be enough. Well, but, but, but again, if you ask my wife, I'm, I'm just an alcoholic, but I do think it, it actually does uh, add to the experience a little bit, which I don't know that you would necessarily, you know, you would never, you wouldn't really think of it like that, especially since so many of them are during the day. And it's kind of, you know, they're trying to cram so much into, a, I think it's like a 10 day period um, that you're really at the parallel when your screening is. And that includes some of these premiere screenings. I mean, you think of a movie premiere, and movie premieres very much are associated with dressing up, and it's a big nighttime affair and this and that. And only like one out of every few of these is at night. A lot of them are at 4 o'clock on a Wednesday at, you know, AMC Village or whatever and this and that. And you shouldn't let that determine. You know, I, I personally think that for the 10 days of Tribeca, no matter what time you're seeing, and this does not just have to do with alcohol, by the way, just in general, Treat every movie that you're seeing, no matter what slot it's in, how how uh, you know glamorous or otherwise it might be, whether it's the 8 p.m. slot at the Beacon Theater on a Friday or whether you're going at you know 4 p.m. on a Tuesday afternoon, you know, sort of mentally treat it like you are going to the uh, you know the cotillion or the prom or whatever, because it's like not saying you need to wear a suit, but you know, because that is kind of what it is for all these films right. and all these filmmakers and all these moments. It really is the highlight of their year. It's the culmination of this process, and not all of them might they might not all look and feel the same because again they can't all get that prime time slot in the biggest and the best theaters but i'll tell you what no matter what when those lights go down no matter what theater you're in the the applause and the and the notoriety and the kind of all that appreciation feels the same and i know you got to check out a lot of these venues large and small you can kind of probably agree or attest to this that they do such a great job of spreading it across Manhattan and spreading it across all these different windows of times and things like that. And, you know, I know it can be kind of hard to get, you know, excited to do something at 11 in the morning or five in the afternoon or something like that. But as much as you can, uh, I, I would just encourage you not to be discouraged by an awkward time slot that something might have. And also mm-hmm. not kind of allow yourself to maybe get sucked into the like, oh, you know, I'm cramming this in between my, you know, between work and my other thing at night and I'm just going to kind of get it in. Treat every like the special occasion that it is because hey we're not going to have this again until june 2024 so that's right and i definitely want to 
you know, get into kind of the how-to guide of the Tribeca Film Festival. But I'm, I'm glad we covered the important, the most important stuff first, and that's food, and that's booze, and we're ready to move on. I appreciate that, Scott. We have, we, you know, we have a history of Tribeca now where they have gotten a couple recent Oscar noms, and I'll get into those, and there are stars coming out for all of these screenings. And the number that I walked past, bumped into, I, I talked to Mike on the last episode about the phrase press, pressing the flesh and how gross that phrase is. But it, it's true for this festival. I think when you do it right, and there's a big difference between the BMCC premiere, even though that's still fun and unique because it's so big. Uh, it's kind of like the Alice Tully Hall New York Film Festival experience for me. However, you're kind of sectioned off, whereas we found some fun premieres at S. Well, we found a fun premiere together at SVA. I've also, you know, did a fun, a couple fun premieres at Village East. Uh, and I think you did the same to where you were able to find some of the smaller venue premieres more accessible. And certainly, you know, you're mixing it up with the stars, you know, 10 feet away the whole time. Yeah, you know, part of what I wanted to kind of, you know, help your your listener base with, you know, again, based on the experience I've had over the years, um, granted, this might apply to some more than others if you live in the tri-state area or if, hey, if you're just a big film fan and, and you might consider in the future making a trip down to New York uh, come June 2024 or in a future year to check out the Tribeca Film Festival, um, I think this stuff would be useful and helpful because I think that, look, it's never going to be Sundance in that, you know, you're going to go see a bunch of movies that a year to two years from now are going to be the, the talk of the town and there's going to be bidding wars right. for some of these things. It's not going to be anyway. TIFF. It's not going to be, you know, Telluride, Venice, etc. Cannes. It's not going to be these, these uh, festivals where you get the first look at films that are like, you know, five of the top ten Oscar favorites for the year after. But... What Tribeca does have, in addition to a city that's very easy to get around and a lot of venues that are sort of well-suited for this, or some that aren't well-suited, but in kind of a fun and a good and an intimate way, is they pack it not just with films, but with podcasts and talks and uh, TV stuff um, to the point where, as you mentioned, when you talk about what it is pushing, pushing flesh or rubbing elbows or whatever, it really is just a 10-day period where New York is just flooded with talent from the worlds of you know, music and film and, and everyone involved in the, in the festival. And just by the nature of the way New York City is and the way these venues are and the way the process is, you're getting to go and obviously you're going in primarily maybe seeing a movie and hearing people talk afterwards. But a lot of the time you're also sitting in the crowd amongst the people who made that film, who starred in that film. You know, when you're walking into the theater, you're walking in next to them. Or if you want, you can watch outside while they do the step and repeat and they do all the interviews and the red carpet and stuff like that. That's not something like, for instance, whenever you watch the Oscars and you watch these things, normally that's not something that is like happening as close to the sidewalk, both literally and figuratively right. as it does for Tribeca, right? Which to me is is very cool. It's a very like boots on the ground kind of thing. Um, you mentioned BMCC, which is like the largest theater that they have here um, that they do Tribeca at. They also do some at the Beacon Theater, which is sort of, you know, it's a, uh, a large music venue that does have like a ton of staff and this and that. And those tend to be, you know, you, you, you walk through and enter and it's kind of a larger stage experience. But other than that, these theaters, like you mentioned, the, the Village East and the SVA theaters and stuff like that, they're very small and intimate. And by buying a ticket to the premiere screenings of these movies, you're essentially going to, whether you're going to one or you're going to half a dozen, 
movie premieres, which for the average person and film goer is not something that most of us get invited to. You know, if you're not a, you know, uh, a, a member of the a press and a, and a high level ranking member of the press, or if you're not, you know, sort of a mover and a shaker or whatever, you're probably not going to a lot of movie premieres, you know, from you know July to the following May. I know I don't, but during Tribeca week, you can, if you plan it right, go to a lot of movie premieres and go to a lot of talks and things like that. And everyone is kind of in this great mood because these movies are kind of little legend that could movies for the most part you know it's not like they're on you know stop number nine out of ten promoting mission impossible rogue nation or whatever and they're just sick of doing the same interviews these are labor of love passion projects many of the actors in these films are producers on them because that's kind of how they make it worth their while to star in some of these movies that might be a little bit below their pay grade normally and so you have these people who shot these films sometimes a year sometimes two or three years ago that are finally getting to bring them to market bring them to an audience they're coming to represent them and everyone's sort of like just in a good mood and celebrating filmmaking and these films specifically for, like I said, a period of 10 days. So it really is a cool thing to attend, whether you're attending the movies specifically, whether you go to the talks, whether you just come and kind of gawk and walk around or kind of frolic around (laughs) some of the, you know, the restaurants and bars that are around these places. uh, It's pretty cool. And it's something that I think goes a little bit underreported because you know, you guys, I'm sure, year-round are often talking about all these other film festivals as sort of precursors as they lead up to the Oscars. And I think mm-hmm. you'd be, you know, the first to admit that Tribeca's kind of low on that pecking order. But that being said, when it comes to the average person getting to have a really cool experience, you know, again, frolicking among the Hollywood elite and getting to go attend film premieres and stuff like that, like... I guarantee you that, you know, I don't know exactly what the Sundance experience is like, or I don't know exactly what some of these other film festival experiences are like, but I would, I would imagine that it is not as easy for the average person to say, decide tomorrow that 2024 is going to be the year you hit the ground running with Tribeca. And if you hear a couple of the tips that I'm going to give you a little in a little bit of what tickets to purchase and things like that, where you could really have seven to 10 days where you feel like you had the experience that the movie critics and the pundits and even the celebrities that you follow on social media seemingly have at all these film festivals. And that's not something you could decide to do next year and do it can. It's just not. So that's what I love about Tribeca. Is it something where you're going to see the next great Oscar-winning documentary? Probably not. Is it something where you're going to see the premiere of Indiana Jones? No. But other than that, like it really to me is the best movie-going experience kind of that New York has to offer. And it's not even the only film festival we have here. We have other film festivals that arguably are more integral to the awards process later on that to me kind of come and go. And I don't even realize they're happening. They happen at like Lincoln center. They're mainly invite only. You know what I mean? Like, and I'm talking about the New York film festival, you know, that happens in the fall. And this just to me is, this is the Everyman's film festival. A lot of the films will, will see the, the mileage varies on how much we enjoyed them and this and that. And obviously these are smaller budget productions and whatnot. But what comes with that, in my opinion, is just sort of an intimacy and an ability to be a part of everything that, you know, few film festivals that do bring out Paul McCartney and Robert De Niro and everyone under the sun offer to the average film lover. And and that's what I really love about Tribeca. And that's what I've learned over the last 10 years, trial and error of going to Tribeca first, just randomly showing up for random screenings. And then, you know, by accident showing up to one where the entire cast was there doing a free talk afterwards and realizing that both of those tickets cost exactly the same amount. Whereas one of them seems to have a value 
value of triple the value of the one that's randomly just a movie at three o'clock. So all this to say that if you're hearing this podcast and it sounds fun, whether you live a hop and a skip from New York City, you know, next year, I highly recommend it would even be worth your time and your money if you said, hey, I'm going to get a hotel. I'm going to get an Airbnb. I'm going to come stay from Friday to Monday, the big Tribeca week, try to get in as much as I can. I guarantee you, you end up going home saying, wow, I just feel like I went to, you know, cinema summer camp for a week. And again, you know, I know there are tons of other film festivals and I can't speak to those experiences, but just from kind of following them from afar, they don't feel like they do it as well and do it as broadly as we do here in New York City for Tribeca. Well, I tell you what, I mean, proximity wise, as long as you do it correctly, like you're like you're saying, and you're going to get into that. I mean, you're going to mix it up with the talent and certainly the crews uh, involved. Some of these screenings are home games in the sense that most of the crew is there, at least the principal crew people, uh, whether they're sectioned off in, in their own spot or whether they're you know dispersed throughout the crowd. You know, a name comes up on the credits and you get a round of applause or you get a whoop and then it happens again and again throughout the whole credits. You know you're in a home game. You know you're in one of those screenings. And and I can't help just being who I am as kind of this athletic evaluator, this coach. I'm working with kids and I'm working with high school athletes that are trying to get, you know, Division One scholarships. And I've been very lucky of late to have a bunch of those kids. I can't help but size people up. Like Scott, I, I mean, you're working. You're working with all these elite athletes all the time with the with the challenge, and they're coming on the pod. I mean, you can't help it. You can't help but do the tail of the tape sometimes. And I have to say this: like Brie Larson, I mean, those fitness videos online, like she looks like a great athlete. Michael Shannon is an aircraft carrier. He's six foot four, five, whatever. I mean, the dude is the wide shoulders on this guy. Uh, Alexander Skarsgård, really tall, really tall, like he dwarfs me. Uh, you know, so these people are bouncing around like Richard Gere. He's, he's an old, older guy now, David Duchovny, older guy now. Uh, but you know, they, they're so distinctive looking, like you could never miss them in, in, in a million years. Uh, Daryl McCormick, McCormick, so lean, svelte. Holy shnikes, he looks like a swimmer or something, Olympic swimmer. Uh, Chelsea Peretti is very, I mean, she's so unique. You you, you met Jordan Peele, etc. But we, you know, like uh, Sophia Lillis, Michael Sarah, they're teeny tiny. They, I mean, they're adorable. They're both teeny tiny, though. And then we had, I had one more that I'm trying to think of. Oh, my God, of course, Israel Adesanya. So the real McCoy, uh, world-class a- athlete uh, from Stylebender there, MMA champion, Dude is wide and he's tall and his whole family was at this premiere <laughs> and he was absolutely ginormous and you could tell why why he beats up people for a living. So like this sort of stuff to me, you know, just spending a week there, you're not going to get at the New York Film Festival where I see Joaquin Phoenix from a hundred rows away at the back of Alex Tully Hall. You're going to get that at Tribeca though when you go to a premiere or even a second day. At, uh, you know, I think where we should start with first time female director, perhaps, uh, that we both saw, you know, something like that where you get to, you know, you're in the first or second row and you watch this whole, you know, ensemble of comedians 
give the Q&A, give the intro. Stuff like that is is intimate and the proximity is close, Scott. So yeah, let's let's share those couple of tips, please. Yeah. On which screening. So here's what I'll after. say is that something I learned along the way is that Tribeca does not handhold you through this process. They don't necessarily make it easy and obvious to the naked eye which screenings, you know, for lack of a better way of phrasing it, are the special ones, right? I think mm-hmm. they do that for two reasons. I think because A, they know that the people who know know and like, you know, whatever. And I think also they don't want to make the other screenings pale in comparison or feel like those shouldn't be attended. I also think that maybe at the time these go on sale, it might not be set in stone, although for the most part it is. I don't think they want to be held accountable for sort of over-offering and under-delivering, right? Mm-hmm. So what happens is when Tribeca announces their slate uh, of movies, normally it comes out without uh, a schedule attached to it. Uh, just kind of who's in what, you know, these are the movies that are premiering, these are the people in them. Well, when that happens, I like to just do a preliminary scan of kind of like, okay, cool, who are the big names and faces and this like that? And here's the thing, right? I'm not saying, you know, it's a little pretentious to just go off of like, oh, these are the most famous people. These are the biggest names. But, right. you know, you, you can often sometimes you go to a restaurant and if you don't know wine that well, you kind of go, OK, I'm not going to go with the cheapest bottle of wine, but maybe the third from the bottom, you know, and you kind of <laughs> ba- you go based on the price. Right. I, it is sort of a safe bet to go and start looking at the movies where you recognize the performers or the filmmakers or the names or even the subject matters and start to make mental notes because here's what it is. It's not almost saying, I know this movie's going to be good because it has stars attached to it. It's if this movie's not good, at least I got to see a movie with someone I like. Or if this movie's not good, at least I got to go and rub elbows with Alexander Skarsgård or whatever, right? I think it's Mm -hmm. kind of hedging your bets a little bit, you know? I don't think any of us are are so great at scouting out films from a paragraph right up that just from a mile away we can tell whether something's going to be worth seeing over something else. And that's, I, I think, with all film festivals, but particularly with this one, I think it's kind of like, look, you're not going to have all the time in the world. You're not going to have all the money in the world. And you got to kind of pick your spots. And I personally, although... You know, a certain uh, you know film lovers might say this is counterintuitive to to doing it this way, and you should you know go for what sh- should be the best movie or whatever. I think it's smart to kind of make mental notes of who the performers that you'd like to see both physically in person and then on the screen are. So then when that schedule comes out, uh, what I like to do is I like to go through and go back to those movies that I already kind of wrote down and targeted. And I, w- what I always suggest people do is look at what the first you know, chronologically, the first screening is for these films. Chances mm-hmm. are that first one is going to be the premiere screening. That is technically the first time anyone's seeing the movie, particularly if it's something that's premiering literally at Tribeca. They try to, whenever possible, have that be the one that everyone shows up to. You'll also probably be able to tell by the time of day and the theater that that is probably the one to go for. Those are the ones that I would start penciling into your schedule and see how many of those you can fit. Is it rocket science? No. Occasionally there is like a screening right before at a smaller theater or this or that, and it ends up not being the premiere. But for the most part, if it's a, a PM screening at BMCC or you know anywhere from a 5 PM screening or later at SVA or even at some of these other smaller screenings, uh, you know theaters like the uh, East Village one, and it's the first one, you can probably guess that that's going to be the one where the filmmakers and as many of the cast and crew show up to as possible. 
Now, in your experience, you went to see First Time Female Director the day after I saw it. I saw the premiere screening. It had a ton of the cast there, the filmmakers, etc. You went the next day. Chelsea Peretti, the director, and a couple of the actors were still there the next day. So it's not that all the other screenings are completely, you know, blank and and nobody shows up to them. Particularly the filmmakers tend to come to a lot of them, maybe even sometimes all of them if they have the time. Um, But that premiere is really when that's when they pencil in the red carpet. That's when they give the press a list of who's going to be there. That's when friends and family even come. You'll get people who aren't even, you know, in the film or just friends of the filmmakers who maybe come out and you get some extra star power there. The reason I'm mentioning this is when you go on the site, all of these screenings cost the same amount. Let's say they're 25 bucks, right? So to mm-hmm. me, would you rather pay 25 bucks and just see a movie or pay 25 bucks and get to see all the cast and crew and, you know, you get this red carpet experience and then they do a talk afterwards. Maybe if this floats your boat and this is your kind of thing, maybe you get to take a photo with one or two of them after. To me, that just feels like a $70 value by comparison, right? And the fact that they are all on the site for the same amount of money, it really, and that's why these screenings are the first ones to sell out. My Second yeah. tip is the way Tribeca does it is before they put on they put tickets on sale to the masses, they allow you to purchase a ticket package. I believe the lowest one you can buy is for eight tickets, or you can buy one for twelve tickets. And this buys you a couple extra days of being able to pick your screening times. If you get one of these, you will guarantee that you will probably I would say ninety nine percent sure get your pick of the litter of screenings. So mm-hmm. I do this every year, right? What's cool about it is It means you either go to eight movies by yourself or you go to four movies with a buddy or whatever. I found this year that they're pretty malleable if, for instance, you need to end up, you know, trading a ticket. If there's still theaters and screenings available, if you need to, like, make an exchange, they'll do it within reason unless it's sold out. You can always show up to a screening with an extra ticket and sell it to someone on the rush line. So... I would highly recommend doing this either way, whether you think you have the mileage for eight screenings or more or not, do this to be able to pick your screenings, right? So then you go through and you basically can ensure that you can go to the premiere screening of say the five or six or maybe even four, whatever it is, movies that you like the most. And now you know that you are getting the movie premiere experience for the movies that you either the subject matter interests you the most or just, Hey, these are the people Brie Larson or whoever that I want to be in a room with for two hours. I think that sounds pretty cool. That makes me feel like I'm going to a film festival. And I will say that this will exponentially make your enjoyment level higher because look, there is a lot of waiting online. There is a lot of like, Hey, you know, you got to sit in this seat. You got to sit in that seat. There is a lot of watching the same previews over and over again. And all of that can be negated by some of this other fun stuff that you don't get the average you know, movie you go to with AMC see a list on a Thursday afternoon. So to me, do your due diligence to make this experience as special as it can be, because this experience can be super special and make you feel like you're one of the Hollywood elite and you're watching movies with you're watching premiere screenings next to movie stars, or it can honestly feel like just going to random movies on a Thursday, like when you see with AMC eight list, but with none of the convenience, you do have to get there early. Your seat isn't assigned. Mm -hmm. It doesn't recline all that stuff. So to me, Doing these things, as much as I know it's not for everybody, you know, my wife and I are the people that when we go to Disney World, we plan the whole thing out a year in advance. We're watching the Disney food blog stuff. Other people just like to show up to Disney and just like, you know, wing it. We are not those people. I'm not that person. But if you have the stomach for it, I highly recommend doing that because that is what makes Tribeca a special experience. 
and will allow you, if you just do those simple things, get the A-ticket package so you get the early access to the tickets, be hip to the schedule before it goes on sale, pick those premiere screenings of your the few movies that you want to see, and you can guarantee that for as much mileage as you have, as much energy as you have, you are going to film premieres over the course of eight to 10 days in New York City. And here's another tip, you know, if you, even further, if you're like, say, deciding between two or three different movies, I'll tell you what, SVA, which is where we saw adults, and I think you went maybe yep. for another screening or two. To me, that's the perfect theater to see a film in uh, because it's big, it's not small, but it, it is fairly intimate, right? It is sort of the size of an average movie theater. They have two different screens. One of them is even smaller. So when you're going and you're seeing, you know, you're seeing these movies and these premieres, you're seeing them in a regular size movie theater. I've been to screenings there where I was sitting next to Sting, the the, the musician, even though the wrestler <laughs> would have been cool too. And I was literally had Sting on one side of me, I had Mark Cuban on the other side of me, and and there are other <laughs> theaters that are a little bigger. Beacon Theater is a little bigger. BMCC is a little bigger. Things like that. So there are some really small theaters too. You can kind of decide. Decide, hey, would I rather go see this movie in a super big theater where I'm probably going to be sitting up top and I won't necessarily be near everybody? Or would I rather see this movie? Maybe the movie doesn't interest me as much, but I know I'm going to be in this intimate movie theater with the cast and crew of this film. So those are some tips of the, the you know, the, the trades, tricks of the trades, I should say. You have a year to kind of, you know, think about it. And obviously towards next April or May when all this information starts to come out. But first and foremost, I would sign up for their email list. Uh, I believe it's, you know, Tribeca, is it Tribeca.com or TribecaFilm.com? Um, you know, follow them on Twitter, things like that. So you're hip to all the announcements because, you know, the main thing is don't get behind the curve. They do give you enough leeway time. They give everyone enough leeway time to be mentally prepared. You don't want to the week before decide, hey, I would love to go to some of this stuff. And at that point, most of the screenings overall, but certainly the premiere screenings are completely sold out. So just, just make sure that you do your due diligence before. Uh, and I think you'll have a really good time. And, and here's what I'll, another thing I want to say. This film festival has been going on for a long time. I started mm -hmm. going maybe around 10 years ago. I didn't get my footing to where I started getting this stuff down until maybe about four or five years ago. And then it all went kaput after 2019 because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there was a couple of years where there was no film festival at all or it moved online. And it did slowly but surely come back to what I would now call normal. But if you went in 2021, you know, it was everyone had to wear masks. Or if you went in 2022, I think some of the theaters still masks or, you know, a lot of this stuff like was, was sort of, you know, still frowned upon or things like that. And so now this year felt fully back, really felt like the Tribeca of old, almost had a positive energy in the air that it, I don't even think I've ever remembered it having because I think it was that first year back since, you know, having it taken away from us for so long. So 2024, I can imagine, we'll just either have the same energy, if not more so. So, um, and if this year maybe we're still feeling a little uneasy about getting out there, hopefully in 2024, uh, maybe you feel even easier about it and, uh, you know, more eager to get out there and experience stuff in person because this really felt like, I mean, Again, I, I, I hate to I, I hate to be insensitive and, and ever say things like, you know, you, you would never have you know been able to tell yourself that what just happened to us for several years happened. But it really like because sometimes even, you know, you go to Broadway, you look around, you see you're like, OK, I can still kind of feel the effects of what we went through uh, this. I, I really barely thought about it, which, again, can sound insensitive. But, you know, as far as the way I'm discussing it is kind of to me a positive thing, uh, because when you're going to sit in crowds of people, you never want to have that kind of underlying anxiety or uncertainty or should I be doing this? And to me, this year, that was all gone. Besides the fog and weird toxic air we had for a couple of days here in New York City. But who's <laughs> yeah. counting? Who's counting air quality toxin levels? <laughs> 
the other than the airborne toxic event, you're right. I think it went swimmingly. Uh, I do want to get into some of the movies now with you. I, I really, I, I'm really glad that we were able to execute that how-to guide the way we wanted to. We talked about this at our sit-down, eating that burger, and uh, you know, kudos to you, my friend. That was perfect. I, you know, to add a couple of things, maybe real quick, is that. You know, if you do arrive early, especially at one of the smaller venues, it's also an intimate kind of little setup for the premiere pictures. Like I, I could stand three feet away from the red carpet uh, photo opportunity with the paparazzi, etc., for Israel Adesanya or for Daryl McCormick and etc. You know, taking their photos. Now, I'm not as much of a lingerer, but I was very, I could very easily put my phone up over the uh over the people taking the professional pictures and take whatever i want and i was able to do that and send a bunch of uh videos etc to my my family and my brothers who are mma fans etc so if you go to like village east or or uh uh, sva there and you want to get there a little early you can kind of just hang out and watch them get their their photos taken especially you know especially if you're dressed a little better than I was I felt a little self-conscious I don't know about you Scott I don't think I dressed well enough which is going to be a big improvement I need to make next year but like you said we're always learning and I, look to 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 get into the movies this year I want to talk about a few of the movies from the last few years because I do think Tribeca's rising in terms of its profile like we've seen some Oscar nominees like Ascension Simple as Water and of course American Factory the Oscar winner they've all been part of Tribeca's 2021 and 2019 respectively last year though we had a bunch of films that are notable like we had Hidden Letters Hallelujah Leonard Cohen both in the documentary shortlist Good luck to you, Leo Grant. Cha-Cha Real Smooth. We're getting a lot of Sundance kind of retreads, a love song, Indie Spirits, Our Father the Devil. And then you get a lot of you know, early premieres to movies that are going to come out in multiplexes in the spring. Last year, we got The Black Phone, Vengeance, Jennifer Lopez Halftime, which came out on Netflix, premiered the festival. This year, we got Elemental, The Blackening, uh, a couple more that I'll go into and I, I do think that's become a new trend with some of these film festivals, with the short little ramp up, you know, or, or runway, I would say, for launch day. Uh, I like how they're doing that, and it's been working for Cannes everywhere. Every festival's been festival's been doing that. But there's always like these awesome hidden gems at Tribeca. The half of it was one of my favorite movies from 2020. That was the pandemic affected Tribeca, but they that won best film. We had you know going back, A Hunt for the Wilder People, Taika Waititi. Uh, just it go goes on and on, and I've covered this on other episodes. But uh, Super Dark Times, Elvis and Nixon, Disobedience. Diane, some really good movies in the last five years or so, Scott, that have come out. So I do wonder if Tribeca could ever get into the position where they're like they're like a, a second, or, you know, a stateside can. I mean, maybe they don't want to be a stateside can necessarily, but maybe they want to be a South by Southwest mm. level. And all it takes is one breakout, like everything everywhere. No, yeah, you know, it's. I think South by is definitely the great comparison there. You know, what's interesting. So, and shouts to uh, my friend Gabrielle Nadig, who had a film King Jack that won the uh, Audience Award back in, uh, I believe, 2015. Nice. Uh, what, what's interesting is it's so funny that the films like King Jack and and like 
like the films that even won the awards this year, as much as they are trying to uh, pack the festival with some of the, the, the bigger names and things like that and these flashy sort of hop and a skip kind of, you know, debut premieres right before they, they you know, break it big in the theaters like an elemental and things like that. That to me is kind of a little bit superficial. And what still pokes through with Tribeca, which I think is great, is the uh, the filmmakers that are really at sort of a crossroads in their career and shining a light on the whether it's the directors, the cinematographers, the producers. And you see when you come to these talks, you hear so many of them are returning filmmakers who are coming back from, say, they had their first film there. Uh, they had a short there. Now they had a uh, now they have a larger film there. And it really can be a path to uh, filmmakers working themselves up the ladder, working themselves up the film festival circuit, things like that. I know you'll you'll constantly hear about people who have stories being you know local, whether they're from New York or the the area and things like that. So I feel like it kind of I mean, look, we, you know, elemental quote unquote premiering here before it hit the big yeah. screens. I mean, to me, to me that is you know wh- whatever the opposite of a, a, a cash grab is, that is kind of just like an eyeball grab kind of thing. Almost like Tribeca feels like they need that to feel like a can and like these other film festivals where films really are authentically premiering at these film festivals almost to give themselves more prestige than they would into a a major theater you know a movie like indiana jones is almost hopefully you know when you read that it premiered at Cannes, subconsciously you're saying oh maybe it's going to be better than i thought you know a lot Mm. of the you know the fall and winter oscar contenders that premiere at those fall festivals they're doing that strategically like that's the first wave of feedback that you get from these test audiences of the the sort of most elite and that's where a lot of the pundits are and things like that those are very strategic these are the opposites right uh and i often sometimes will see that with with south by southwest as well although i think south by southwest probably has a little bit more uh authenticity to it particularly with the comedies and some of the you know high concept stuff that's premiered there over the years to me at tribeca it's sort of a give and take where it's like tribeca i think feels like it needs to have some of these big name movies that sort of like have a a cup of coffee premiere here before they they premiere you know broadly if you look these movies aren't even eligible for any of the awards and things like that like they're literally just it is a it is a ceremonial sort of thing that they're doing being attached to this and so to me i chalk those up to just like kind of again adding to the star power adding to the luster of the film festival uh but it's sort of the opposite of of how it is at these other film festivals if you ask me and that's why i find it to be sort of the least interesting uh aspect of tribeca one thing that those other film festivals don't have at least you know from my knowledge and maybe i'm wrong about this but tribeca is also loaded with talks and things like that they're also loaded with like documentaries coupled with performances like when we talk about one of the docs i saw um it was coupled with you know cindy lopper who's the subject of the doc she did a six song performance after with a full band things like that they do that not just with her but they do it they tend to do with musicians and whatnot um when there is a, a film about them and like for instance like when i was waiting to get into the henrik lundquist doc at bmcc the thing in there before was a talk with conan o'brien and paul mccartney which obviously mm. has nothing to do with film at all, but is, again, just adding to the luster, adding to the star power of the film festival. And so it's become... And that kind of goes hand-in-hand hand with New York. I feel like New York is just this town where it's like everything's bustling, everything's moving. We're talking about everything. It's sort of just... You know, it's almost like a tribute not just to cinema and, and you know the film world, but sort of like the arts and celebrity and television and things like that as well. And it's kind of all under the same roof. You kind of bounce from one thing to the other. But 
uh, here am I waiting online to get into a documentary about a hockey goalie, which, yes, is technically a movie, but you could argue that Paul McCartney and Conan O'Brien have just as many tangential connections to the film world as, say, a Henrik Lundqvist does, you know, even if it's in the form of a documentary. So <laughs> to me, it, it, it's interesting, like, instead of kind of grasping at straws and kind of trying to put Tribeca in the same box as the other film festivals and wondering if the next great breakout movie is actually going to come from Tribeca... I almost feel like it, 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 it's not that type of film festival, you know? It's mm -hmm. almost the type of film festival, like, you know, uh, a few years ago, I saw a film here again, to shout out Gabrielle Nadig again. She, uh, she produced a film called Little Woods, which was directed by uh, Nia DaCosta, I believe is her name. I hope I'm saying it correctly. Sure. And now she has gone on to this illustrious big Hollywood film career. Uh, I believe she did the Candyman remake. I believe, uh, whether it's uh, the next Captain, Captain Marvel, Marvel yeah. movie or the Marvels, I forget which one, but she's now directing a Marvel movie. And this is kind of on the heels of a film, a very sort of small two-hander film with Tessa Thompson that she made here at Tribeca. So it's, it's almost like, you know, the same way that you might look at, you know, if you're into baseball, you might like the idea of going and watching, say, the Futures game of the, uh, you know, All-Star Weekend, or you might like the idea of mm -hmm. going to a double-A affiliate, or you might like going to spring training, not just to see the Aaron Judges of the world, but maybe to see the Aaron Judges of the world before they're actually up on the Yankees, you know? And that, to me, is sort of more what Tribeca is about than, say, the way that Tri Telluride or TIFF or Cannes or these other film festivals are about finding the next crop of content that is going to be the thing we're talking about next year. This is sort of, to me, watching the artists and the filmmakers, watching them sort of fine-tune their craft, but also be able to get it in front of the right people uh, and, and sort of mingle with the right people and things like that, where you kind of look back... You know, it's not as easy to do so with a simple Google search, but I guarantee you if you looked back at some of the filmmakers who have had films at Tribeca where, say, the film maybe just kind of went on to a, you know, maybe a shorter life onto Amazon or something like that or whatnot, but you can find, I would imagine, like a farm system of filmmakers who either debuted or really got their footing under them at Tribeca and then became something else. And then maybe two years from now had a film that really did do some, some damage at the Oscars or the DGA or whatever. However, that film maybe didn't premiere at Tribeca. You know what I'm saying? So I just I just right. feel like, you know, for whatever reason, whether it be the time of year, whether it be, you know, the, the film festival itself, it's sort of that ahead of the curve, but also in, in, in like charming in its sort of uh, w w what's the word? You know, it's almost like it's not necessarily a stop on the road to the uh, award cycle, which I think by being separate from that sort of absolves it of all of that like, you know, <laughs> sort of buzz that can kind of be, you know, a little bit misleading and a little bit kind of, you know, toxic in a way sometimes, you know, it's all about, oh, what's everyone saying about this? You're almost looking too far ahead. You kind of just get to live in the moment for these 10 days with these films where for 10 days, we're talking about some of these films that you and I saw where we'll give our reviews like some of them aren't even that great. But for that week, you know what I mean? They have the mantle. They have the pedestal here in New York City, the biggest and greatest city in the world. So it's like, I think that's almost more enchanting than like the prerequisite being, is this film going to matter next March? If not, then I don't care. There are charms and promise to, to so many of these movies. And I, I've done this festival a couple, couple different ways. Last year I did it where I came for a couple of days 
And then I was still at home kind of cranking out all the screenings, screeners online where I was, you know, really digging for gold. And I, you know, I found a couple of really good movies the year before that where it was exclusively, well, it was really online for exclusively online for me where I couldn't venture into the city. I found a ton of movies where a couple of, you know, just treasured films of that year for me where I really found the deep cuts. So if you dig for treasure, you can find some of your favorite movies of the year even if they're not necessarily going to win all the awards. But I think you you hit on something for the Oscar scouts like me. There's still some, so I would push back with you a little bit, there's still some worth in kind of mining for the, the, the talents that could wind up being in the Oscars race. And I do think Tribeca may eventually break through in that regard beyond the documentary feature because the typically, like, when you have a star directed project where that person is making the transition historically throughout oscars history from robert redford all the way to jordan peele you can get breakouts and first time successes that away and uh, you know maggie gyllenhaal a couple years ago for instance with uh, uh the lost daughter this year i saw movies from from david newcovney michael shannon uh steve buscemi uh, we had uh, Chelsea Peretti, and, and you know I sought them out, and it, it was definitely factored in for me uh, in terms of why I wanted to 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 go to those films. Like you saw Lil, Lily Rob, Lily Rob, Rabe's film, or mm-hmm. I forget yep. how to pronounce her name. Anyway, but sometimes they may have a shot. Randall Park shortcomings, etc. I mean that factors in once in a while, and and I guess I guess we both could land on the fact that we're hopeful. Perhaps that you know when we go to a screening like this, why not? Like, like, let's see it factor in down the line at the Oscars. And I was certainly aware of that. But you're right; it's not like the reason I go to Tribeca. I go to Tribeca because there there's a charm to each one of these movies, even if it's not a A minus movie or whatever that should be you know at every award show down the line. I'm gonna get five or six really awesome scenes in that film. And and that was true for most of these at the end of the day, even if it was not five or six. These movies have their charms. And First Time Female Director, I don't know if we can start there, was, was one of those for me because I laughed. I got to tell you, I laughed like a dozen times sitting in that first row at Chelsea Peretti's comedy because, you know what, I've laughed at... Chelsea Peretti's comedy and Natasha Leggero's comedy and Jermaine Fowler and Andy Richter and Megan Mullally and Blake Anderson and, and Max Greenfield from from uh, what was that? Oh God, yes. Thank you. I've I've laughed at Kate Berlant's comedy for years, and I got to meet a, a Benito Skinner for the first time. And oh, Amy Poehler's in this for Christ's sake. But obviously. She's got the comedy chops, and the movie is a bit disjointed. I think they were going for Waiting for Guffman or Hamlet 2 or or even Theater Camp, for that matter, and they didn't quite land on that. I think she underwrote her own character uh, in the movie to where she's kind of just... You know, a, a, a mirror on the business, more or less, than than more of a fully flushed out character, unfortunately. But first time female director, again, I'm, I'm going to have a hard time hating a movie that makes me laugh twelve times heartily. 
Yeah, and I overall find uh, it hard to ever come out of any of these things, quote unquote, hating them, which again is a gift and a curse, right? Because to me, it's it's funny. It's like we went out for a uh, we went out for a beer and some nachos after seeing a film, not this film, another film, and casually the woman behind us overhears our conversation, and says, "Oh, what are your what have been your favorite films?" And I'm smart enough to know that this woman's probably probably worked <laughs> on the film that we had just saw. So I yeah. sort of jokingly and in jest say the film that we had just saw, and she goes, "Oh no, stop, whatever." But but that's the thing is like you never know who you're standing next to right so as much as you know i might normally go to see a movie and the minute i'm walking out of the theater i'm talking about how oh the ending was too long and judd apatow are you kidding me three hours for a comedy blah 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 and not only do you do that as you're walking out of the theater you do it you know next door at dinner with with reckless abandon because when are you going to be sitting next to judd apatow or the star of the film or even the star of the film's Mm -hmm. niece or whatever but at tribeca you are very much in the circles of these people which i think sort of in a way it like it certainly hampers your your instinct to out loud you know say anything that you feel strongly about negatively but in essence i think subconsciously it also just prevents you from having that level of vitriol for a film that might really annoy you or might have disappointed you and things like that so so to me i think it's it's kind of like a nice place to be i think like we we as people are sort of you know clickbaity uh, uh, you know in our second nature now where it's like everyone's got to have a hot take everything's either great or awful it was my favorite movie or yes. my least favorite movie, you know, this and that and the other thing. And I think that's kind of tempered by the fact that you just never know who you're going to be next to, or you literally do know that you're next to the person that put two years into this movie, whether it be the filmmaker themselves or just like the editor or something like that. I mean, what, what I mentioned this before, but like when, when the credits air during these movies, it's like there's uproarious applause for things like the, like, you know, production coordinator mm-hmm. or like, you know, location manager or whatever. Cause you can tell they're clearly there. And so my, so honestly, again, it, 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 it's a gift and a curse in that, you know, you find yourself kind of, you know, these movies do, in my opinion, from year to year, not to single out any films this year, but just overall, they do for the most part, with few exceptions, I've seen some absolutely phenomenal films at Tribeca, but for the most part, they tend to be, you know, there, there is to me like a, a kind of like film festival movie, right? You have to kind of lower your expectations for scope, you know, locations, budget, things like mm. that. A lot of the stories can be smaller. They tend to be kind of character based, things like that. You know, comedies tend to almost be able to go for it a little more, which can be a good thing or a bad thing. I would argue it's kind of both with first time female director. But that being said, it's like, you know, I go to see these movies and I never come out, quote unquote, hating them because my brain has kind of shut that part of my brain off. Do I often coming out come out of them loving them? No, not not so much either. But that being said, I appreciate them and I have an appreciation for them that almost year round my brain doesn't even allow me to have. Like I'll almost decide if I go to see a regular movie, you know, I'm almost deciding, you know, sometimes a third in, oh man, I don't like this or whatever. And I start to then watch the rest of the movie through the glasses of I really hate this Ant Man movie. You know, and then by then it's like I come out of it with seven takes about why I hated it because I sort of decided that. Tribeca sort of doesn't allow that for me, at least in my brain. Um, So I very rarely come out of these movies, you know, with a strong detest for them. I sort of start to figure out aspects of them that I do appreciate, you know, whether it be the casting or whether it be the ambition or whether it be that one cameo, whether it be that one scene or the way that that was was done. So, you know, 
to bring it back to first time female director, I will say the one thing that if I was more mentally prepared for wouldn't have caught me off guard. And I, I know I read the synopsis for this a bunch and maybe I just didn't read the word theater, but this movie is about a first time direct female director in the theater world. They're making a theatrical stage production in Los Angeles. And as you mentioned, you use the sort of waiting for Guffman analogy. It is very much about the theater world, which again can be very funny as well. And I've seen a lot of great movies about that world. I know there's a movie coming out this summer with Ben Platt about theater camp that I'm very excited to see. So it's not even like that subject matter is something that doesn't interest me. I had just told myself that this was going to be about a first time female director sort of navigating her way through the film world. And like, you know, you know, all the like, you know, stuff that comes with being a first time female director in Hollywood and dealing with notes and executives and things like that. And when I knew that it was produced by Amy Poehler and obviously had Chelsea Peretti at the helm and had this great cast and things like that, I just intrinsically am more interested in sort of commentaries on Hollywood and the film world than the theater world, you know? So that was something that like within the first two minutes of the film, when I realized that's what we're getting here, it was a little bit of a letting the air out of my sails. So, um, but that being said, for what the film is, I thought, again, swings for the fences. You know, you mentioned she kind of underwrote her performance. I thought her performance was, you know, definitely, definitely interesting. She definitely goes for it. Uh, It's definitely an ensemble piece. I feel like when you're literally a first time female director and you're starring in your movie, you know, you call it under writing the performance of the character i think there's sort of subconsciously an instinct to not make yourself the star of your own movie even if your character yeah. is in fact the star and the focal point so um because of that i think she does defer to some of these other people and parts and whatnot and, and in some instances it calls for that and in some instances you sort of wish you were getting more of her but um i definitely enjoyed it i liked it especially again getting to go and be in the room with the, all these people and many of them were there uh, i have to say her her obviously brilliant brilliant filmmaker husband Jordan Peele was there supporting the film obviously supporting his wife but he does have a small cameo in the movie as does Adam Scott uh, and things like that so uh, it's cool to just you know see someone who's at the top of his game three for three on the on the big screen with his movies and kind of now getting to watch his his wife you know in her first attempt at at making a feature here so again I think you know a really fun movie that there's so many people in this movie to be fans of that could protect potentially draw you to it that I'd imagine that if that is the case you go to see this are you going to come out of it saying oh this is going to be the next big breakout comedy probably not but is it something that you'll probably have fun watching and as you mentioned laugh out loud about six or seven times probably also true so uh, I don't know where it's winding up next, but if, if it lands on your queue, I, I'd recommend checking it out, at least for as long as you can take it. You know, if you turn it on, it is one of those movies that if you turn it on and you find yourself not loving it, not getting it, feel free to turn it off because it is more <laughs> of that, right? What it kind of sets up, it kind of is that for the 90 minutes, which I think is great. But also, again, sometimes you, you, you give these movies a second or third chance because you're hoping there's more to it. And a lot of times there is not so much with this one, but not necessarily to its detriment. It's a go for the joke comedy, uh, similar, not in terms of a spoof, like weird, the Al Yankovic story, but it's heading to Roku and Roku's kind of interested, it seems, in these kind of go for the joke comedies. So first time female director will be on Roku. I give it a C plus. I'm not going to necessarily get fixated on all my grades today. I feel like I, I did three movies a day. I did it right. I spaced it out. I hung out with you. I, I, I know you, I think you did it like four or five days where you did maybe two a night uh, in, in many cases. Maybe you had a day of three, but 
like first time female director as the first of three movies is a nice little appetizer for me and it and it worked uh we can move on to the adults now that we both saw literally together sitting next to one another you know you you sat us in the in the third or fourth row you know we're walking by the the cast and crew and we're in there this is going to be a universal picture so there's there's a you know, there, there's a presence from the distributors in the room. Certainly, there's a cast and crew there. We had Sophia Lillis from It, Michael Sarah from Superbad and Juno, and Scott Pilgrim, uh, Hannah Gross from Mindhunter. They're all in the building with, of course, writer-director Dustin Guy DeFay. And I got to be honest with you. I mean, you, you gave me a face when this guy started talking. It, it was not his strength to do the introduction. I'm a little surprised that he forced himself to do it, but public speaking, just he wasn't super comfortable with it uh, for a guy as good of a director as he is here. So what what did you think when this thing started and he's he's up there just kind of bu- stumbling and bumbling? It wasn't even the say. first stumbling and bumbling I saw this week, which, again, I mean, normally I would be, you know, I, I would sort of be, you know, caught off guard by this, but you see it more often than not almost with Tribeca really? because, you know, for every person who's, you know, eloquent or hilarious and whatnot up there, you do get a lot of people who are maybe, you know, more, they're, they're the, the auteur, they're the artiste, they're not necessarily also the person who's going to be like, you know, hosting a great podcast in the future, or you know, so someone who's Chelsea Peretti, she put on. She's a show. great, like, you know, she's exactly. So for every person like that, and that's why I think you know it's interesting. Before you mentioned the whole like you know, uh, person going from in front of the camera to behind the camera, or maybe even doing a bit of mm-hmm. both, like you know, Lily Rabe, who obviously co-directs uh, Downtown Owl, but is also very much the star of it. So it's interesting, Downtown Owl and fe- first-time female director, kind of you know had uh, you know were sort of mirrored in that way with you know Chelsea and Lily both in front of the camera but also director credits there i think the reason that tribeca often is a great spot for first time uh actor directors whether they're in the film or not and you saw you see it with other you know stars making their directorial debut at tribeca a lot is you know i i think that not everybody is is bradley cooper hitting it out of the park with that degree of difficulty on a star is born where he doesn't get the nomination but i think if if he if he not only got the nomination but one best director that year i don't think there'd be that many people that angry about it i mean it's very rare that people step into the role and knock it out of the park like that or like how ben affleck has and the few times that it does happen you can tell that the studio and the person themselves they kind of see it coming or you know reviews are coming in and whatnot and those are not normally the films that you see premiere at a film festival like tribeca however you know a chelsea Peretti or a Lily Rabe or in years past you've seen dozens and dozens of of, uh, celebrities and actors have their films debut at Tribeca it's almost the perfect fit because for for, you know Mm. For someone who may or may not be getting the chance to direct based on their connections in the industry and based on their you know profile as an actor and whatnot, it can be a bumpy road to really fine-tuning your craft and, and putting out sure. a movie that really is going to potentially be winning awards someday. But that doesn't, doesn't mean that people wouldn't love to see it and love to support it, and especially at a film like Tribeca, a film festival like Tribeca, that Tribeca and their committee that selects films wouldn't love to have you and your star power and your industry connections and the cast that you've managed to put together for your debut feature on their stage. So I think that's why it's the perfect marriage here, right? Because Tribeca is sort of the perfect barometer for these films. It's sort of the perfect you know playing field for these films that, yes, um, 
Um, none of them are terrible, but it's but you can sort of see you can kind of see the training wheels a little bit. You can see the fact that you know for a lot of these um, filmmakers making their directorial debut is obviously going to be a learning experience, and this is very much kind of step one in that direction. But for us, a bunch of excited New Yorkers to just sort of a support you and your craft and see what you're doing, but also just get to see and hear you speak and things like that. It's perfect. It's the perfect trade off. So both with Downtown Owl and with uh, First Time Female Director, I thought they were they were very valiant efforts uh, on both their parts. And I think that, you know, it was it's kind of the... Those, to me, are the perfect Tribeca Film Festival movies because, you know, mm-hmm. based on the fact that you have these actor-directors who, you know... Um, and, and again, you, you can even, you know, throw in the... Uh, the adults where not necessarily the director, but you know, Michael Sarah, who was a producer on the film and very much at the front of the, of the, of the talk and every, very much at the front of this you know, marketing campaign for this movie and things like that. It's this perfect trade off where it's like, Hey, you know, you're trying to do something. You're trying to step outside of the box. You're trying to, you know, and, and we also here very much appreciate not just you being a part of this film festival experience, but all the people that you're able to bring with it because of your role in the film industry that say just, you know, a new first time director might not have the same ability and have the same Rolodex, you know? Yeah, and that brings up something else uh, for me in terms of, uh, like, targeting which movies you're going to target at these festivals. You know, look and see if they have distributors and then look and see when (laughs) there might be those movies getting, when those movies are getting distributed. Like, The Adults is coming out in, in August on the 18th, but when I looked at other movies like The Blackening, and I wanted to see Elemental because I was hoping like I would I would get like a big premiere kind of experience out of it. But it was kind of this fake premiere, as you mentioned, North American premiere. But The Adults was like this legitimate premiere a couple of months beforehand, world premiere of the film, Universal's behind it. And it seems like it seems like they really went went at this here with in terms of the publicity because it, it worked for them. They got they got the reception they were hoping for. Ninety one percent on Rotten Tomatoes. A bunch of reviews, double digit reviews. Seventy one Metascore. I'm seeing a lot of buzz for the adults right now, and I guess we can kind of you know verify what's what's happening with the story. Like because I think it's it it is a unique lens that we haven't seen before. This is a brother and two sisters reuniting after years growing apart. You have. Th- them being like these theater kids growing up, putting on performances in the parlor for their family members or themselves. And you kind of have this, uh, this, you know, going back to those, those days and, and reminiscing, but also recreating all those same performances amongst this cast. So it's really a showcase for how charming these cast members can be. Sarah Gross and, and Sophia Lillis there. Europe you, in particular very high on Michael Sarah, and I would agree with you, Ed. I loved your take, like walking out of there. Uh, if you can recreate that now for for the our audience, like wh- where does this fit for you on Michael Sarah's career? Well, it's interesting. So after we saw this, there was there's a Rolling Stone profile or interview with him came out. I don't know if you, I don't know if you uh, saw that. I will. Adm- I didn't. See I will that. admit I did not read the entire thing. But it does seem like there is a bit of a Michael Sarah renaissance, at least one that's being projected, whether it gets, you know, fully uh, formulated or not. We'll have to see. I've heard that he might be in a future Wes Anderson project. And then, you know, this movie as well um, is is sort of very much in sort of size and, and, and scope, something you'd expect from him. 
but the character is like you know re- you know for lack of a better way of putting it really douchey uh, really unlikable um and right. sort of but what it does have is this nice balance of like you know inherent underlying like sort of charm you sort of like can't look away but it really has to be pried out of him and, and he's really just kind of a deplorable person michael mm-hmm. Sarah in his first few like big breaking roles you know by you know doing arrested development where he's this sort of soft-spoken quirky son and and he's very you know sort of the you know the the, the brunt of the joke and very you know nerdy and rambunctious and this and that um you sort of put him into that box which he sort of rides very gracefully into super bad where he plays kind of a similar role and is kind of the you know the the nice guy to jonas hill jonah hill's kind of you know fast talking prick he then, you know, and then Scott Pilgrim, I think you could put in the, in the same category as well. A little bit more snarky, but again, sort of the nerdy hero kind of thing. Then he goes and plays this role where he plays an absurdist version of himself in this movie called This Is The End. Uh, this Is The End is also, in my opinion, <laughs> the end of sort of that era of comedy where you could actually put whatever you yeah. want and whatever you think on screen and, and uh, not get canceled. I, I rewatched it recently and thought, wow, I mean, th- wow. Th- this really does seem like the end of an era sort of for, for those guys in those movies they were making. I think everyone kind of went off and started, started to do different things in life and in their career, but also movies like this, whether it's because they weren't being made the same way or as well or not. We just really haven't seen as many of them since. In that movie, if you remember, Michael Sarah plays this over-the-top prick version of himself, right? Mm-hmm. He's like, you know, saying uh, crude things to Rihanna. She's smacking him in the face. He's doing blow in the bathroom. And oh although I will say that is probably, you know, turned up to 11 and meant to be sort of a joking version of this, this version, which is a more toned-down version of that, is sort of closer to that than it is the earlier Michael Sarah stuff. You know, you also kind of see somewhere in the middle of these two things in the small role he plays in Aaron Sorkin's Molly's Game in around 2017, where he's playing what a lot of people think is supposed to be like the film version of the Tobey Maguire, Leonardo DiCaprio, Ben Affleck aggregate of sort of celebrity poker player who's been in these backstage games and stuff with, with Molly at the time. And so this movie that we saw, he's doing this so well in the movie Movie, but also, even if you watch him during the Q&A or I had the luxury while I was waiting for you to see him kind of interact with some people beforehand and things like that, I wonder if now what we're going to start to realize collectively as filmgoers and as a society and now even better what filmmakers are going to start realizing and leaning into is that it wasn't Michael Sarah doing this absurdist false version of himself for this is the end. He was really putting on the performance when he was doing the the role in Superbad and doing the role in Arrested Development, and that this is sort of more who Michael Sarah is, and this is kind of the guy that really, if you unleash this guy to varying degrees on your movie or let your characters, if you're writing characters for Michael Sarah like this director seemed to have done, um, I think it opens up an entirely new lane for him based on the fact that this is kind of the guy, I think, who's been deep down inside there the whole time. Now, that's not a very long-winded way of me saying, hey, guess what? I think Michael Sarah might be an asshole. I honestly just think that sometimes when it comes to really finding what works best for a performer and really using them to their maximum abilities is by inserting like enough of their real personality that can kind of come out in doses that uh, I I think that's when you can really potentially get that 10 out of 10 kind of perfect role, perfect 
you know, character perfect performance. Not to say that George Michael and not to say that, uh, who is it? Uh, you know, whatever his character's name is in uh, in Superbad weren't great performances. But I think that was him doing this sort of you know that's him being Daniel Day Lewis. You know, method acting, be, playing this person. This you know mm-hmm. where really he is more so the guy in This Is the End. Like This Is the End is him basically showing up to set and kind of being who maybe he is before and after he's there. That's kind of what I took because in this role in this movie he is effortlessly douchey uh from start to finish and it works very well i think it's perfect for the movie i think it's the performance in the movie that i think you you in my opinion you come out of the movie really thinking about and it sounds like you know whether it be because of this movie or not it sounds like we're going to have this new wave of michael Sarah performances and roles uh in the future and my prediction is that they're going to be more in line with stuff like this and more in line with the this is the end character um, and that, and then who knows, who knows where, where we go with it. But, you know, for a guy who seems like he's been omnipresent and really in our life for the last 20 years, if you think about it, he has not done much, you know, outside of Arrested Development, Scott Pilgrim, super bad. And again, a, a role here or there in a, in a Molly's game and things like that. But for a guy who seems so famous, so well known, it's almost like when you go through your brain to like wrap your head around his catalog, you sort of by accident put half of Jesse Eisenberg's ca- catalog in there as well. You know what I mean? Right. So I, I just I, I feel like if we are en route to the Michael Sarah Renaissance or the Sarasans here, this movie might be something that gets inserted in that narrative because this might be kind of a an official changing of the guard. Whereas I think with this is the end, we looked at it as this like sticky kind of thing. He was doing the same way that like, you know, Tom Cruise was showing up to play an agent in Tropic Thunder. It's like, Oh wow. Look at him playing out of type. That's so hilarious. But mm-hmm. honestly, I think these guys might've wrote that role for him for a reason. These are guys who know him well and knew him well. And we're like, he'd be really good at this. And so maybe on like a 10 year delay. Now we're going to find out that Michael Sarah is the Michael Sarah that really needed to, to, uh, you know, let the, you know, get the keys in the car in, the, in that type of car and let him drive. Honestly, that quote unquote 10 year delay that does seem to apply to not necessarily child stars, but even teenage stars where it takes them a, a minute to find their footing as who they're going to be as a, as an adult actor. And, and it, it might mirror the, the arcs of this film in a way. And during the, the, the Q&A, we kind of validated some of that in the sense that the director and Michael Sarah talked about how they played poker together during the pandemic. And there's this whole poker game subplot in this film, uh, B story in this film, that really, I thought, some of the best scenes of the movie, sequences of the movie, that... You know, we get to know Michael Sarah as a poker player in many instances. And, you know, again, he validated that, yeah, this is kind of how I play it. Sometimes I do this, uh, you know, the director, when I play poker against Michael, this is how he acts or what whatnot. So it, that was cool to see. And you're right. I think the at least taking the heightened authenticity uh, of his real life and putting it into this movie, even though it might be, you know, a kind of cookie cutter at times to, to, to get a story arc going, it does work for me in, in a sense. And I do, I do appreciate this movie's unique tone at times. And I have a couple peccadillos on the plot that I won't really get into, but this movie rubbed me the wrong way with its finale 
in the sense that it's more affirmation than revelation, and that bothers me. I don't. I just don't want a big speech ending the movie that's on the nose. But that's a me problem, perhaps, because other people like that. I don't know. I just that, that bothers me. And then there's character assassination involved with one of the main characters, Hannah Gross's character. Like, I don't want to hear how you don't care about dogs early in the movie. Like, that bothered me so much as a doggy daddy, but I, I don't know. Maybe, you know, her character's in a redemption arc. You know that. It's obvious. So, I don't know. That's it's, I'm going to give this movie another, like, B-, minus. so C-plus, B-minuses for our first two movies. We took our time with those because we both saw them together in a way, or both saw, both saw each of them, I would say. But any more thoughts on the adults before we kind of... You know, rip off a bunch more. I mean, this to me was just like a quintessential film festival movie, right? Like, if movies like this are Mm. kind of too small for your liking, it's very literally like small town movie shot in upstate New York. It's basically a three hander, three characters uh, outside of when Michael Sarah goes and plays poker with a few other people. It's basically about him and his two sisters. Uh, All the performances are good, but again, it's very small, very low stakes. And so, if you are ready for that and you are looking for that sort of film festival movie and experience, which again plays a little differently in the theater at a film festival than it might in theaters in August. Um, I think if you know what you're getting with this, I do think it delivers. I think, um, you know, again, the, the ways in which it might bother you, I think some of them might be even intentional. So, um, but yeah, I mean, look, I, I think I saw seven films. I would say this was probably somewhere in the middle of the pack as far as uh, my, uh, my favorites, but, um, but yeah. A big thanks to Scott Yeager. That's where we'll cut off part one today. Make sure you guys stay tuned and click play on the second half of our Tribeca Festival conversation where we'll be completing the rest of our movie reviews. 17 in all, 15 on the next episode. We'll talk five films available to you all right now in Pixar's Elemental, The Blackening, Maggie Moores starring John Hamm and Tina Fey, plus documentaries Stan Lee and Di- uh, on Disney+, Plus and Take Care of Maya on Netflix. Scott will review a science fiction thriller, ISS, starring Ariana DeBose and Chris Messina. He'll review the adaptation of Chuck Klosterman's Downtown Owl, starring Lily Robb, directed by Lily Robb, uh, and uh, Henry Golding, Ed Harris, etc. And he'll review three more documentaries about Biz Marquis, Cindy Lauper, and Hendrik Lundquist. Uh, I'll review David Duchovny's Bucky Effing Dent, Uh, Michael Shannon's directorial debut, Eric LaRue, starring Alexander Skarsgård and Judy Greer, plus Kit Harington's, or Kit Harington starring in Blood for Dust alongside Scoop McNary, Tessa Thompson, uh, a solo performance in Steve Buscemi's excellent The Listener, and and another movie I really liked in Daryl McCormick, Julie Duplee, and Richard E. Grant in Bleecker Street's The Lesson. Uh, Like I said, Mike and I will return next week with episodes on Asteroid City, Past Lives, and there's definitely going to be another Oscar race checkpoint, probably in between those two film studies on The Flash, No Hard Feelings. Maybe we'll get an Indiana Jones review in, in this ORC as well. But there's also been some big Academy rule changes and a bunch of new trailers, including the steamy look at Zendaya, Mike Feist, and Josh O'Connor in Luca Guadagnino's Challengers. Uh, you can find us at Mike, Mike, and Oscar on Facebook, Instagram, Spotify, Apple, and wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Mike, Mike, and Oscar, uh, and you'll find us there. Otherwise, we are at MM and Oscar on Twitter. 
But of course, your words of wisdom today are to follow everything Scott Yeager does at Challenge Mania. A bunch of his live shows are sold out, but you guys can still get some tickets at challengemania.live to shows in Seattle, Baltimore, and with Scott and Derek's return to Texas. Get those tickets while they last. Otherwise, Scott is shot of Jaeger, S-H, shot of Jaeger, Y-A-G-E-R on Twitter, and he is Scott of Jaeger, S-C-O-T-T, on Instagram. Uh, if you enjoy our podcast, do please support us by subscribing, rating us five stars, kick, clicking a like button, or leaving us a positive review. Those all go a long way to organically helping us with the algorithms online and, and putting those into our favor. And that helps us spread the word about our podcast. So thank you all for that. And stay tuned for the rest of our Tribeca movie reviews in part two. Uh, so I will see you guys on the other side here, hopefully in a day or two. And uh, looking forward to it. See ya.